first scripture reading this morning is from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36, verses 25 through 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all of your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Our second scripture reading is from John 17, 20 through 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them, even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. The word of the Lord. Before service, Danielle said to me, are you sure you gave me the right Old Testament text? Because that's uh, the third time I remember reading it this past year, for the Old Testament text. And I realized that, as well as our gospel lesson, John 17, really go with almost any thematic text that we're studying because they cut to the core in Ezekiel of God's promise of the new covenant. And then in John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer, uh, when he prayed for us that we would be one, even as he and the Father are one, one in him, and be caught up in this great salvation. So we come to what I think is one of the, one or two most magnificent, comprehensive passages in the entire New Testament, which means the entire scripture. Uh, because it comprehends the basis of our salvation and then fleshes it out. This then is how we should live. For those of you just joining us who've not been part of this summer study of Colossians, uh, Paul is writing to a church that he apparently had not himself visited or planted. It seems to have been a grandchild of a church he did plant in Ephesus. The church planter Epaphras has come to Paul, and it may be we know from, I think it's the end of Philemon, that he was also for a while a fellow prisoner with Paul, so he may have actually been in prison with Paul, but at least he was visiting him and had reported to him some concerns he had for the church, namely that teachers had come in claiming authority and saying, yes, the gospel of Christ, you need that, but you need more than that. And so they'd added to the gospel. And so Paul wrote this letter 
to argue for the absolute and utter supremacy of Christ so that he might, based on that, argue for the full sufficiency of Christ, that Christ has accomplished all. And we've been looking at this and then seeing how Paul describes his own ministry. And now we come to this majestic sort of summing up of the gospel and the call to live as those who've been brought from death to life. So Colossians chapter three, beginning with verse one. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in, the, in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on them as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, <clears throat> kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father, through him. Father, help me to speak your word faithfully, not to get tangled up or chase things that uh, don't deserve our time, but grant me clarity. And I pray that anything I say that is not faithful to this text will be seen as such or quickly forgotten. In Jesus' name, amen. I want us to follow four moves that Paul makes uh, in this text. Um, obviously, just in reading it, you can tell that this is a text so full and rich that you could preach a series from it. Martin Lloyd-Jones would take at least three or four years to have preached these, possibly longer. But um, in the summertime, we're coming and going, and so as I've said before, I like to take large chunks and try at least to comprehend 
some large sections, see what he's doing. And so there are four moves that Paul makes here that I would like uh, to underscore and get you thinking about on this summer day. First, in the opening four verses, he makes clear to us a truth that must be embraced in order to begin to enjoy the reality of the gospel in our lives. So this is basically the sum truth of what he's then going to build on and the rest of what we read. Then, beginning in verse 5, he says that there is a death that you and I are called to die every day. And then in verse 12, he says there is a life that we are called to live. And then in verses 15, 16, and 17, he tells us this is where you can start today. Start like this. So that's where we're going. First of all, a truth to be embraced. And this is so crucial, I think. I've been in vain on this point for quite a few years because I grew up in a part of the church that mostly emphasized regeneration. You must be born again. And at the end of the service, if anyone's ready now to respond while every head is bowed and every eye is closed, slip up that hand. Um, and then, of course, it was a trick because if you slipped up your hand, now while we are all singing, come forward. And it was like, oh, oh no, I, he saw me. Um, I, thank God for people who come to know Christ that way. But um, the bottom line is regeneration is crucial. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. It's not some Baptist doctrine. It's Jesus' doctrine. Peter repeated it in his first letter where he said, you have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven, ready to be revealed at the right time. So regeneration is crucial, but it isn't the whole gospel. We're now in a part of the church where too often people act as though justification is the entire gospel. And I've heard great preachers say that and say, this is the one central doctrine of the church, justification. And in fact, there was, a, I haven't heard it much lately, but there were, was about 10 year period there where it seemed everybody in conservative Presbyterian churches was saying, only preach justification because sanctification, growth in Christ, is just getting used to being justified. Well, you won't find that anywhere in the Bible. And Americans ate it up because basically it sounds great, I'm justified and so I don't have to worry about anything else. It was a, it was, um, well, okay, that may be too strong a word. It wasn't good um, <laughs> because justification isn't everything, nor for our holiness friends is sanctification everything. So what is, is there one all comprehensive term that describes our salvation? There is, and Paul, points to it here. It is our union with Christ. Everything else flows from that. Why have I been born anew? Because I've been united to Christ. Why am I justified? Because I'm united to Christ. Why is my sin put on him and put to death on the cross and his righteousness given to me? Because I'm in union with Christ. Why, why am I growing in grace? Because I'm in union with Christ. Why, am I, why do I have the hope of glory? Union with Christ, it's everything. 
And that's why, as Danielle read to us in John 17, Jesus, on the last night with his disciples before he was arrested and faced the cross, prayed for them in the upper room. I'm praying now for those you've given me. And when he finished, he said, now I'm praying for all those down through history who will believe in me because of their testimony. Jesus, the night that he was arrested, was praying for you and for me. And what was his prayer? That we might be one, even as he and the Father are one. He said, I in them, they in me, as I am in you and you are in me. And it was to be a visible union because he said, so that the world will know that you sent me. Brothers and sisters, every time the world sees Christians fighting, we are basically declaring to them that the gospel really isn't true. Because Jesus twice in those verses prayed that we would so be one. It doesn't mean we agree on everything, but it means the way, the character of our love and the way that we relate to one another is such that the world looks and says, wouldn't it be incredible if everything was like that? If every place, I'd love my home to be like that. I'd love my business to be like that. See how they love one another. And that is the mark of union with Christ. How does it happen? Well, he tells us, if then you've been raised with Christ, Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on earth, for you have died, and your life has been hidden with Christ in God when Christ, who is your life, there it is, union, Christ who is your life appears. Then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul said the same thing, I think, most clearly and movingly in Galatians chapter 2 when he said, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, that brings us to the question, what does he mean when he says, set your mind on heavenly things, not on things on the earth? I mean, I've got work to do. I've got kids to raise. I've got places to go. Am I not supposed to enjoy the beauty of, of Maryland in, in summertime? Am I not supposed to go fishing and have a good time? Am I not supposed to be able to play golf? Well, God spare me that, but I mean, am I, forgive me. I, I shouldn't do that. I, I once, in the presence of my late friend, Harry Reeder, I was preaching at Briarwood, and I made a crack about, you know, God-loving fly fishermen, and had no, you won't find golf in the Bible, and Harry afterwards stood up and said, I disagree. He said, our Lord Jesus said, leave your nets, and the apostle said, I must finish the course. So, <laughs> to those of you who are golfing, my apologies. But, but what does it mean? What does it mean to set your mind on heavenly things? Am I supposed to walk around trying to imagine what heaven is like all the time? And am I wrong when I've got to, you know, fix the faucet? No. 
He's not talking about a false spirituality. There is a way to fix a faucet. There is a way to fish and I'm sure play golf. There is a way to do your work. There is a way to care for your children that is in the biblical sense setting your mind on the things of heaven. And there is a way to go to church and preach and and do all kinds of spiritual looking things that is actually set in your mind on the earth. I remember when, when I was in the Navy and we'd hit port on Sunday, guys that I knew who just didn't believe anything and were wild ones, would, some of them would get up and put on, you know, get kind of cleaned up and say they were going to church. And I'd say, you're going to church? What are you going to church for? And they'd say, women. That's where you meet women. You can go to church for all the wrong reasons. You can, you know, you can preach, God help me, the unique problem of pastors standing up and preaching because we want people to esteem us instead of wanting to disappear so that people will see the one who matters, the one who alone can save. So he's not talking about some false spirituality. He's talking about the reason that we're doing what we're doing. Let me give you one illustration of it. Um, My wife and I had uh, a couple that were very close friends of ours. Uh, He'd he'd done very well and they were philanthropists and gave away millions of dollars regularly. um, But they were having this fight. They, They had a home, a modest home, for them, but on the lake, and and she called us up and said, we need you two to come over and kind of mediate. We're having a big disagreement. We thought, wow. So we went over, and um, and basically, she was saying, you know, I do Bible studies for all these internationals, and even though my friends can't understand why we live this simply, when the internationals come in, they're like, oh my goodness, look at this, look at these views, and so. And she said, I feel as though it's destroying my ability to really bear witness to them about following Jesus radically. And so I want us to to get off the lake and simplify our life. He said, this is where I have my men's retreats with my men's Bible studies. I mean, I bring the guys out here. We all look forward to it. We've done it for years. I mean, I'm not ashamed of this. Everybody knows it. So they're going back and forth. Well, Marianne and I looked at each other sheepishly. And I said, well, you called the wrong people. Uh, Why? And I said, we just had this discussion. Um, I said to Marianne, you know, the kids are grown now and out of the house, and I don't feel like paying to heat this whole place, and, you know, it's, it's too much to take care of. And Marianne said, John, you know, this is where I raised my kids. This is where the grandkids came back. You know, this is the only home my children remember and and there's laughter in the walls and when you're wandering around chasing your mission trips and going where you go this is the place where I feel most at home and I said to our friends um, listening to you I realized that Marianne and I never for a moment stopped and prayed and considered what the Lord might want us to do. I wanted what I wanted, she wanted what she wanted. Of course, 
she got what she wanted. It was, it was, it was a far more poignant and lovely desire, but neither of us had our minds on heavenly things, you see. They were asking the exact same question, but they were asking it, both of them, with their minds on heavenly things. And that's what he's talking about. He's saying, if you've been raised with Christ, you're beginning to learn to look at everything differently, different perspective. So how do we do it? Well, he says, verse 5, put to death, therefore, in you that which is earthly. Paul almost always starts with sexual immorality. Why? Uh, some people say, well, he was a single guy who was kind of obsessed, first century, you know, Jewish rabbi. No, I think there were two reasons that he always began by addressing sexuality. First of all, it's universal. Everybody faces it or has faced it. And frankly, I'm 75. I hope I never get so old not to face it. I mean, that's who we are. And so any human being, you want to get their attention, you say, you know, what are you doing with your body? Is your body the Lord's? The second reason is that. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 6. He says the problem with immorality is that when you're joined to someone, you become one with them, and the Lord wants you to be one with him. And so marriage is a sacramental picture of our union with Christ. And having multiple affairs is a kind of demonic sacramental picture of many gods. I'm not satisfied with any one God. I'll have many gods. And so Paul always starts there, but he immediately cuts deeper. He talks in these, we won't go through the list because you can read it yourself and they're simply emblematic, but he covers the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. Covers all three and drives finally where he always drove, which was to relational sins, absence of loving one another. And then he calls us to love one another. This is the constant theme of Paul. People who think Paul was always condemning, Paul was always calling us to love one another as Christ has loved us. So put off. I told you, I've told you before, forgive me, but I can't read this text in fact, I think it was preaching this text years ago where I got in trouble with one of our guys on staff. It was here that I said, I'm trying to train myself to wake up every morning and say John Wood must die. It's take up your cross, follow Jesus. That's what he said. You know, the cross is a place of death. Take up your cross. I've got to die. I wake up, I say John Wood must die. And the next day at staff meeting, this friend of mine who was an associate pastor said, that was so helpful. I did it this morning and I'm gonna do it every day from now on. I woke up and said, John Wood must die. Uh, please put your own name there. But this is what he's saying. He's saying, you and I don't just get it and, don't, and then never have to deal with it every day. That's why John Piper famously said, I don't wake up a Christian, I have to become one all over again. He didn't mean that he thought he'd lost his union with Christ, but he's just saying in a practical sense, when we wake up, we have to make the intentional decision. This, this isn't, thank you for this day. This is your gift to me. I am not my own. You are my Lord. So direct me 
in verse, actually in verse 10, 9 and 10, he again reminds us that in one sense, God has already done this. He says, you have died. You have been raised with Christ. And then verse 12, he calls us back to it and says, so put on as God's chosen ones and holy. And he depicts the life of Christ for us. Listen how he speaks of it. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let me ask you, does your family have any idea how much you love them? Do you find ways to tell them regularly? Do your children, if you're a parent, know how deeply and dearly you love them? If you're a child and you profess Christ, do your parents know how deeply and dearly you love them? There was an article, I think, yesterday in the Wall Street Journal about all the families canceling each other. You know, it's just become an epidemic. I think I may be over it. I think they said like a fourth, a fourth of the families in the U.S. now, children are canceling their parents. Don't want to hear from them. If you're a Christian, that is not an option. If you have a, an abusive parent or it's dangerous, it's all right to say, I'm not going to put myself in a place again where I can be abused. But it is not right ever just to say, I want no contact. I don't want to ever hear from you. You keep praying. You keep yearning. You keep calling to repentance. But you keep seeking to love, even as God in Christ has loved us. So how do we start? I'm almost done. Three things he tells us, and I think we'll go back next week and, and look at these in detail, but it's so beautiful. Verses 15, 16, 17. First of all, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart and mind. Let the peace of Christ rule there. The word for rule there is the same word as for an umpire. So in other words, when you and I have conflicting passions and desires, mutually exclusive wants, how do we, what mediates in our own hearts when we're all confused and, you know, I want to go this way, I want to go that, you know, I want to be loved by my wife and I also want every attractive woman, you know, whatever is going on in you. Let the shalom, and remember, our word is too small. He, he, he used the Greek word, Irene, when he's writing his letters, but Paul is Jewish. He's thinking shalom, and shalom is the all-embracing experience of the embrace of God. It is being right with God, right with others. It is knowing health and wholeness, and it's wishing every good blessing of God. And he's saying, let that rule your heart and mind. What does that look like? How would you do it? I remember years ago, uh, back when I was not, uh, when I was running from the Lord, but I had a good friend 
who was walking with the Lord. And I, he was an athletic guy and a, you know, an attractive guy. And I just thought, how's he doing this? And I said to him, you know, how do you deal with, uh, with desires, your desire to be with women? And it was so beautiful. He said, um, I just, he said, I want so much to know the Lord's peace and to enjoy intimacy with him. So whenever I have desires that I know are not of him, I just get down on my knees and ask him to give it to me. He said, I'll, I'll just say, Lord, I just met this woman. Would you just give her to me? And he said, saying it to the Lord makes him realize how utterly absurd it is. And he said, then he was able to say, sorry, Lord, that was really stupid, you know. In other words, you are asking what you know to be true of the Lord to umpire your affections. So let the peace of Christ rule in your heart and mind. And then he says, and be thankful. In every one of these three final moves, he ends by saying, and be thankful, or with thanksgiving in your heart to the Lord. So let the peace of Christ rule in your heart and be thankful. Then he said, let the word of God dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish each other with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, making melody in, the heart, in your hearts to the Lord with thanksgiving. Again, it is this, the peace of Christ, thank you, Lord. The word of Christ, the word of Christ cannot dwell in us richly if we don't ever study it and read it and then meditate on it. That's where it gets into us. Studying is just to get us ready to meditate. It's studying God's word. I've said it to you before, but we American evangelicals are great at studying the word, at things like BSF. Well, thank God for BSF and other Bible study uh, systems or methods of inductive Bible study that teach us how to read a text and know what it says. But having done that, all that you've done is prepare the meal. You haven't eaten it. Now you take what you've learned and you sit down and you begin to chew it and think about it. You memorize maybe this verse and take it with you into the day or write it on a card, put it somewhere where you'll bump into it throughout your day and think about it and pray it in so that the word of God gets in you. The great Baptist preacher of the 19th century, Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, this is how it should be. If you stab a Christian, he bleeds Bible. It's just, you just, the word of God is getting in you. And so that's what comes out when you do get pierced. And with thanksgiving. And then finally, whatever you do, in word or in deed, do it all to the glory of God, giving thanks to God the Father. See the rhythm? Those three things. The peace of Christ. Thank you, Lord. The word of God. Thank you, Lord. This vast and glorious life. Thank you, Lord. Whatever I do, whether I eat or drink, I'm done. Famous story, one of my favorite of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. It links to what I said last week uh, about uh, Dutch and, uh, and Baptists and the differences in... Um, uh, it's sometimes... In the old days in England, they were much more like the Dutch, and Charles Haddon Spurgeon was a famous cigar smoker. In fact, one brand of cigars was advertised 
in stores in England as the brand that Spurgeon smokes. And so one Sunday night, of course, if you know anything about Spurgeon, he was the greatest preacher of the 19th century, at least in the English language. His sermons were transcribed every Monday and telegraphed overseas. And people all throughout the States would read his sermons in the newspapers. He was a great preacher, great gospel preacher. He loved cigars. And um, one Sunday night, an American Baptist preacher, George Pentecost, great last name for a preacher, Pentecost, Spurgeon knew who he was, and he was told, Pentecost has come, and he's sitting in, in the a hall tonight. So Spurgeon preached and then surprised Pentecost by saying, um, I'm going to ask our brother George Pentecost just to come up and make application of what I've been preaching. So, of course, Pentecost was stunned, but he came from an American Baptist deal that was very different. So he came up and said, well, I'm honored. He said, as I was listening, it reminded me of a time in my life when God just really convicted me about a filthy habit that I brought right in <laughs> to my Christian life. And I went home and got rid of all my cigars. And, you know, and I, I was so freed from it. And everybody's laughing. Pentecost has no idea why. So when Spurgeon got back up to close the meeting, he said, well, then, you know, Anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. So he said, if you think it's a sin to shine your shoes, don't shine them. But as for me, I intend to go home now and smoke a cigar to the glory of God. <laughs> so what am I saying? Whether you eat or drink or throw out your cigars or go have one now, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God with thanksgiving. Would you stand? Would you stand? Father, thank you so much. Now, thank you, Lord. We thank you for the freedom that you have given us in Christ to do all things for your honor and for your glory. And may we increasingly do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Be thou my